This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, our budget decision this week that could save thousands of lives. Could a chatbot take over from your GP, or at least give them a hand? How you react to hormonal contraceptives could help predict your risk of postpartum depression. But first, Norman, it's been a big week for health news, especially when it comes to smoking and vaping. On Tuesday last week, the government announced the most restrictive laws around vaping that we've seen so far in Australia. Yes, I mean, this is growing concern. Schools, parents and others, children becoming addicted to nicotine, um, widespread availability of nicotine-containing vaping devices, which are disguised as vaping devices. We've covered it a lot on the health report. So this is essentially the banning of vaping devices um, apart from on prescription by doctors via pharmacy and a limitation to the flavours that could be used and plain packaging. So this is really trying to restrict vaping to just its medical use, which is an assisted way of, re- of getting yourself off cigarettes. When related, there's actually new taxes also on tobacco products. Yes, at the same time, this is really quite dramatic. So it equalises all tobacco products and the taxes are going up 5% a year for three years. So in other words, 15% over three years. And they reckon that will raise $3.3 billion. Now, the importance of this rise is not just revenue, is that most people start smoking when they are either children or adolescents. And it's very unusual to take it up later. And children and adolescents, particularly adolescents, are very price sensitive. So if you put up the price, you can get a predicted reduction in the use of tobacco products. So price has been price and a ban of advertising has have been two major ways of controlling tobacco in Australia, apart from also controlling passive smoking through restaurants and other places. So this is this is a big deal in terms of reducing smoking. So they might not get 3.3 billion because people will not take up smoking, but that won't be a bad thing because um, they'll save on costs down the line of smoking. Mm. And of course, the backdrop to the past three and a half years in health has been COVID, but the World Health Organisation has also made a landmark decision in the last week. Yeah, much must be understood, and we'll have more detail on this in Coronacast this week on Wednesday. But um, they basically called an end to the emergency response to COVID. But the point they made was it's not the end of the pandemic and shouldn't be the end of COVID, coronavirus. Um, response systems in individual countries. Of course, we've dismantled a few of those ourselves, but they were intent on saying this was not the end of the pandemic. But we'll have more on Coronacast. Indeed, we will. Uh, Another important question for you, Norman. Have you had a conversation with a chatbot yet? I have on a couple of occasions. I've tried it out on diagnosis and I've tried it out on... um, for a friend, how to write um, a nice note to your godson. Oh, (laughs) It's very good. It's very good for that. Well, apparently, it's very good at being a doctor as well. Yes, Doctor Swan. Uh, doctors are basically obsolete now. Uh, that's the latest here on the health report. I felt obsolete for years. That's something that will be nothing new. <laughs> I mean, people have been turning to Dr. Google for years now, like searching your symptoms and then convincing yourself that you've got some kind of rare end-stage illness is basically as old as the internet itself. But 
artificial intelligence chatbots like ChatGPT have really like leveled up the self-diagnosis game because you can type your medical concerns into these chatbots and get advice back. And I guess really the question is, is the advice any good? Yeah, this is a fascinating study you're about to talk about, which pits doctors against chatbots in terms of empathy and quality. Indeed, I've been having a chat, a real life mouth to mouth chat. That sounds awful. A real, real chat with voices with someone who's been looking into just this. It's John Ayres. Thanks for having me. So what made you turn your attention to chatbots? Well, there's a huge problem in healthcare right now, and that's the doctor is overburdened. They're getting too many messages. After COVID-19, we switched to telehealth, and as a result, their inbox is full. But at the same time, millions of patients are sending messages, and their questions are going unanswered, or getting poor responses. So we turned to an AI chatbot to see if they could help handle the workflow and also improve the quality of the responses that patients get to their healthcare questions. So the way you've done this is sort of test whether the chatbot can do a decent job by kind of going to a place where people are already asking medical questions on a public forum, that is a specific subreddit where people ask medical questions and then a physician will give them an answer. So it's general medical advice, not sort of diagnosis. It can be general medical advice. It can also be some people are seeking a diagnosis. I would say the important thing we did here is for the first time we used real patient questions and real doctor's responses to evaluate how a chatbot could improve that workflow. You want to think as a human that there's something that humans can do that a machine just can't do, which is, you know, be empathetic. But actually what you found was the chatbot responses were more empathetic than the human-generated responses. That's right. The chatbot was 10 times more likely to give a response that a panel of doctors judged to be as empathetic or very empathetic compared to responses written by a physician. What about the actual kind of meat of the answer, though, the medical side of things? Well, our doctors, the panel of evaluators, they also preferred the quality and the accuracy of AI chatbot written responses compared to physicians. Chatbot responses were preferred four to one compared to physician responses, and chatbot responses were nearly four times more likely to be given a score of good or very good in quality. What sort of questions are people asking and what sort of answers were they receiving? Well, the questions we saw certainly mirrored the types of questions that we get here at UCSD Health and the types of issues that would come up. Typically, people were asking about chronic conditions, you know, communications that they'd gotten from their doctor and they're trying to get more information, like how to interpret this result that they were simply emailed. Or other times they were in an acute situation and they're trying to decide, you know, do I go to urgent care or do I go to the ER? You know, I, I swallowed a toothpick, right? That's what one patient asked. And it's like, well, you know, if that happens to you, it's, it's pretty concerning. And so in this case, you know, the physician, you know, responded back, well, the risk of something bad happening is low and left a very curt response, whereas the chatbot was able to explain, yes, the risk is very low and you shouldn't be concerned and had empathy, but also explained that, you know, the person should go and seek emergency medical services if they have, you know, a certain array of symptoms. Now, which of those responses do you think that author is going to make them feel at ease? You know, if you just look at these questions and look at these answers, it becomes clear why the AI performs better. You know, the AI is not constrained. It can type a, a thousand words a minute. Doctors can't. An AI chatbot can review all the considerations that it has, all the knowledge that's been taught. A doctor can't. A doctor has to sample. 
has to give that one answer. But we're not using it to replace the doctor. We're simply using it as an adjunct, you know, as a starting point. You know, what if an AI chatbot could draft that initial response and then the physician herself could then correct it, elevate it, improve it, and then send it with more patients being helped with high-quality responses? Okay, cool. Because I was going to ask you about what the applications are for here, because if these chatbots are so good, then, you know, where's the labour-saving benefit of the chatbot and where's the human's expertise most kind of efficiently deployed? Well, I view this as more than just labour savings, you know, in this workflow. Clearly, CMOs would like their doctors to not resign, and, and many doctors are resigning from the workforce because they're so burdened by messaging. But really, I view this as a game changer for patients. It could really impact patient health outcomes. So many patients are desperate for answers. They turn to Dr. Google, you know, or they turn to their friends or, you know, who knows where they turn and they get information. It could be misinformation. It could be information that prevents them from improving their health. Here, we can integrate this in the healthcare center in a way to amplify how many people uh, our healthcare workers can support. And in doing so, and delivering high-quality, empathetic answers that patients are willing to accept and act on, maybe they'll turn more to healthcare and less to these other sources of information that we know may cause harm. But why would they have to turn to healthcare if they know that they can get a really good response for free on the internet? I don't think that's necessarily true in this case. In our study, we used ChatGPT from OpenAI. It's clearly public and you can use it. But already there's been rules and safety procedures put in place on the platform where it won't provide uh, the same answers that it provided to us in our study that was completed just weeks ago. You know, right now there's some trepidation, you know, for the public to use this. And clearly I wouldn't recommend the public using this on their own. And there's also trepidation among healthcare professionals like a doctor doesn't want to be supported by AI. Clearly the best outcome here for patients and also healthcare professionals is to integrate this into healthcare centers. You know, I really do believe that for some patient populations, high quality messaging could save their life. Yeah, fair enough. And so you're seeing these things working in tandem, humans and the chatbot, which is the humans providing a level of quality assurance over the messaging that's being sent out. One of the reasons why these chatbots are able to give good information is because good information exists online and that's what they're drawing from and kind of consolidating. But with more chat-based software being used that's generating the information that those bots are then drawing on, is there a chance that in time the quality of the messaging becomes degraded because it's drawing on other AI-generated content that might have errors introduced? I think the quality here in this case is only going to improve. If we integrate this into healthcare, what if the chatbot could access your medical record? You know, when you write in and you say, I have a headache and I'm feeling kind of dizzy, your doctor may see that message and they may not remember that you're taking high blood pressure medication. And they may not remember to ask, did you forget to take your medication the last couple of days? As that could be a sign of hypertension. So, you know, that's really going to be the game changer is when this integrates into your healthcare record. And we make medicine less about, you know, the grammar of responding to a patient's questions and less about pointing and clicking and searching through the electronic health record and more about taking that synthesized information and actually practicing medicine by helping people and providing action points based on those insights that were first generated by AI. Were there any big surprises for you personally when you were reviewing the results of this study? The biggest surprise is certainly that a first generation 
catbot, you know, not trained to provide health care, not trained to restrict its answers to robust medical sources, was able to outperform physicians. It's really hard to be a doc. It takes a lot of time, a lot of training. And, you know, it's really promising the results that we saw. None of us expected on our research team to, to see this. And, and many of our colleagues who work with us were like immediately, man, this is a prescription I'd like to give to my email inbox. And certainly we want to work towards that end to help integrate this into the workflow so doctors will be more satisfied. They'll, they'll spend less time worrying about verb-noun conjugation and more time worrying about medicine. But also, maybe more patients' questions will be answered and questions will be answered with higher quality and patients' outcomes will improve. It's a brave new world, John Ayers. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Dr. John Ayers is Vice Chief of Innovation at the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. So what do you reckon, Norman? Do you convince Dr. Chatbot might be part of the mix in the near future? Well, maybe. Let's just try it ourselves. Why don't you ask me a couple of questions and I'll just give you my thoughtful advice. Okay. Uh, someone has said, I swallowed a toothpick a couple of hours ago and I'm worried I'm going to die. Maybe. <laughs> okay, so that's the physician's response. Yeah, well, the, right. the chatbot said, it's natural to be concerned if you've ingested a foreign object. It's highly unlikely the toothpick you swallow oh, is going to cause you serious new, harm. It's a new age chatbot. Yeah, go on, give me another one now. Uh, okay, uh, I've smacked my head on a metal bar while I'm running. Uh, am I going to die? Maybe. <laughs> it's best to err on the side of caution when it comes to head injuries. And then it gives a lovely list of uh, things to, to seek medical attention immediately if you see them. Oh, very, very proper. Shall I give you one more? Yeah, go on, give me one more. Uh, I have noticed a hard lump under the skin of my penis, Norman. <laughs> well, I can't answer maybe. Am I going to die from penile cancer? How would I know? Go and, tell, go and talk to a computer. They'll tell you. I'm getting fed up with this chatbot. <laughs> Will you be pleased to know the chatbot gives a very empathetic response and you probably won't be surprised to know that that wasn't me in that question no, for real. And I can uncross my knees. <laughs> uh, and Norman, just to round this one off, I love John's accent so much that I asked him to do a show reset for us. Take it away, John. This is the Health Report on ABC Radio. For many women who experience postpartum depression, it comes as a bolt from the blue. It can be hard to separate at first from the fatigue and overwhelm of being a new parent. And if it's not treated early, it can last a long time and have impacts on baby. So what if there was a way to predict who might be at higher risk of postpartum depression and put in safeguards early? One theory is that there are certain people more prone to depression at times of hormonal transitions. Pregnancy and birth is obviously a big time for this, but so is going on hormonal contraceptives. One person who's been looking at this in detail is Weba Frokia from the University of Copenhagen. Welcome. Thank you very much. So women are twice as likely to have depressive episodes than men. What do we already know about the role of reproductive hormones and depression? So we know that, uh, as you say, women are twice at, uh, as frequently becomes depressed uh, compared to men. And we know that that risk is particularly within the reproductive years. So we are speculating if, if at least for a subgroup of women, the hormonal contributions that might lead to increased risk of developing a depression play a role. We know that the risk for developing a depressive episode is, is at its maximum for a woman in a woman's life at around pregnancy and after having given birth. So we know it's a, 
an important period to try to understand better. So what you've tried to do is pull together basically all women in Denmark from over the past 40 or so years and linking their prescription of hormonal contraceptives, their prescription of antidepressant drugs and their birth records and try to sort of tease out whether there is this link between whether someone has depression after they go on hormonal contraceptives and whether that gives them an increased risk of having depression after having a baby. And you found that, yes, there is a link. Yeah, definitely. So what we saw was that uh, if you have had a depressive episode that time-wise coincides with having started a hormonal uh, contraceptive, then you also have a, 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 a clearly increased risk for postpartum depression. And that is beyond the risk that you have if you have had any kind of depressive episode with any timing onset not necessarily related to a hormonal event. So we can see that on top of the risk that you would have to have a newer depression if you had already had one, there is a subgroup or certain women where the hormonal contributions probably play a larger role. And the wish is then if we would be able to identify these more closely or profile the risk for women who are pregnant more um, precisely, we might be able to target better with preventive uh, strategies and also maybe increased monitoring and perhaps then also a faster pickup if there were any symptoms that needed treatment. So that's the kind of idea or next steps from this. I guess in a perfect world, anyone who finds themselves in a position of, of having postpartum depression gets the help that they need as swiftly as possible. You're sort of saying, if we can stratify that risk, we can intervene early in these women who who do have it. What sorts of early interventions are available that actually make a difference um, to sort of head off depression or, or help resolve it more quickly? That's a work in development, but we know something. We know that, for instance, uh, counselling with a specialised team of health professionals, including midwives and psychiatrists and psychologists, uh, can actually help, but only if we can kind of, you know, find a way to provide it for the, for the high-risk group. So it's not something that we can prove works if we just give it to everyone. And that's maybe because we then maybe also, you know, put some burden on women in terms of a negative, expecting a negative outcome. But if we can uh, provide it to the high-risk groups, then we can see effects. And also, there might be, you know, for a particular group of women who have a really high proportion of hormone-related risk mechanisms on board, we might be able to also directly target that but these are things that has to be uh, evaluated first. But we are working with clinical trials trying to evaluate with providing short-term estradiol after uh, giving birth to particularly high, high-risk groups uh, may have a preventive effects over placebo, for instance. But, it, you know, the, the tipping point is if, if we can really find the right group. And, and, and here we are a little bit closer to having an idea about that it's first meaningful to think about a certain subgroup that are more hormone sensitive than others, and also uh, some information that, that might help us profile that risk. Depression can be a really hard thing to understand. And I wonder whether if you can do this work to discover perhaps a hormonal link between depression, that that perhaps could also in time shed more light on non-hormonal um, drivers of depression in other mm -hmm. people. Yes, I think teasing out different uh, components that add to risk will help us understand also other elements, not only uh, hormonal contributions, because we know that it's a depressive episode. It's, it, it's a really complex etiology and pathophysiology and also treatment mechanism-wise, it's complex. So 
Yes, I think that we can, uh, by kind of stratifying better, also be better to find maybe subgroups where the hormonal uh, systems do not play a larger role and then concentrate our energy to, to try to optimize those groups instead of uh, focusing on the hormonal contributions. But also understanding better actually hormone-related mechanisms might play a role in every brain because we all go through some really heavy and very important and maturing uh, hormonal transitions in puberty, right? That goes for both men and women. And there also, there could be some of our really largest uh, mental health, public health problems that arise uh, particularly in puberty. So these mechanisms are quite uh, basic for every brain that can uh, develop in an adaptive and, and uh, sometimes, for, unfortunately, in a maladaptive way when going through transitions. So there's also a kind of meter or general aspect to understanding uh, hormone-related mechanisms better. Yeah, it's a useful finding and also seems like a rich theme to mine in terms of future research. Viva, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Psychiatrist and Associate Professor Viva Frockia from the Department of Clinical Medicine at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. About 13,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer each year and there are about 8,500 deaths. It's the fifth commonest cancer diagnosis, but the leading cause of cancer death in both men and women. And one reason for the high death rate is that it's found too late for the only curative treatment, which is surgery to remove part or all of the affected lung. One way of getting lung cancer diagnosed at an earlier stage when it's operable is to screen otherwise well people who are at risk largely because of their smoking history by performing a CT scan of their lungs. It's been enormously controversial and the health report has covered the issue on more than one occasion. But last week, Cancer Australia announced that a lung cancer screening program will start in 2025 with the potential to reduce deaths by 20%. Professor Dorothy Keefe is the CEO of Cancer Australia. Welcome back to the Health Report, Dorothy. Thanks very much, Norman. How will this program work? Because it's a bit more complicated than, than say, the bowel cancer screening or cervical cancer screening program. Do you think it is? I think it's uh, reasonably straightforward. Well, People here's your opportunity between... to convince the nation. <laughs> People, thank you. Uh, people between the age of 50 and 70 who have been smokers or who are active smokers will be eligible to undergo a low-dose CT scan to every two years. And uh, we want the program to be inclusive, so there'll be lots of different ways of um, finding those people. So um, you could go to your GP and be sort of picked up as being a smoker or your GP could send out letters or invitations by whatever means to having looked at their records to see and and everybody who goes to presents to a healthcare setting we could check that they are a smoker or, or fit the age criteria and then um, send them off for a low dose CT scan. Because I, look, I looked at your report your original report on this and you talked about risk assessment that it wasn't just being a smoker or an ex-smoker you'd actually go through a risk assessment that's why I would say it was complicated your age oh. your gender your ethnicity how intense your smoking had been or still is. Yes. Now, that, that's the difference between the lung cancer screening inquiry, which we conducted a couple of years ago, and the program that the Medical Scientific Advisory Committee, MSAC, has recommended. So we did have that extra step of a, of a slightly more complicated risk assessment, but MSAC has recommended that we not do that, that we just go on age and smoking history, which does simplify it somewhat. 
So if I smoked at any time in my life and I'm aged over 55 or, 50, or uh, over 55, or is it 50, I'm eligible for screening? Uh, so you have to have be an active smoker or have given up in the last 10 years. And yes, we did suggest 55 for non-Indigenous people and 50 for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But MSAC has again simplified that and said, no, let's start everybody at 50. Now, when they did the clinical trials on this, um, some years ago in the United States and elsewhere. One of the problems with the clinical trials, which made people question this, is that when you do a CT scan of the lungs, you find stuff that you're never meant to see, and they're called pulmonary nodules. They're little lumps, and you're never quite sure whether they're malignant or not. And then once you see one, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to go in, do a bronchoscopy, which has its own risks, create anxiety, and there was a lot of cost attached to that. What's different now about this when you find these other things that are going on that might mean absolutely nothing? So it's a very good question. The evidence is evolving and has evolved over the last decade to the point now where low-dose CT scan is actually getting more and more clever at detecting whether a nodule is likely to be a cancer or not a cancer. And actually computer-assisted um, AI helps that too. So that's built into the program as well. But the other thing is that, you know, those tiny nodules that are really borderline will just have a repeat scan in a few months' time. So depending on the findings of the scan, if your scan's normal, you go off for two years and have a repeat one. If your scan has a tiny abnormality and really we can't tell whether that's a cancer or not a cancer, you come back again in three months. You know, so you have a, a sort of different cadence for the different things that we find. And of course, the beauty of this program being the first one developed in the digital age is that the algorithms and the digitization of the program are much easier than they would have been 10 or 15 years ago. Now, one of the reasons people say that bowel cancer screening is not as successful in terms of penetration of the population as, say, cervical cancer screening is in women is that cervical cancer is controlled by GPs, GPs are heavily involved, and bowel cancer screening is kind of bypassed general practitioners. Are GPs central to this screening program? In other words, which will give it a greater likelihood of success? Absolutely. So, so what we want to do here is enable everyone who is eligible to participate in the program. So I think the Aboriginal controlled community health organisations are just as vital and and enabling Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are at more risk of, of lung cancer. This is the commonest cancer in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, enabling them to participate too. And of course, it's all about, I mean, setting these things up is all about communication. That it's about empowering the GPs to refer the people. And then the the results have to come back to them. You know, we have to make sure that there's a, a, a proper um, completed circuit of testing and then getting the results and, and enabling everyone to join in. It's still it's low-dose CAT scanning, so you're not getting a lot mm -hmm. of radiation, but is there still a risk that the radiation from the CAT scanning could trigger cancer, push you over the edge? It's No, it's pretty... It's getting lower and lower, the dose that we use, which is, which is fabulous. So, you know, one of the reasons it's taken this long to get the evidence to say that this is the right thing to do is that the doses were too high. And there was a risk, a potential risk of 
of increasing the risk the cancer um, however now the doses are so low that and continuing to fall that that's no longer a risk and that's why but you do have to get that balance between um, who needs it who will benefit from it and who won't and that I think goes on to this business of you know not all lung cancer is caused by smoking but the evidence for non-smokers is not there yet and the scans would be too risky if you if you did them for the entire population. This is the non-smoking related lung cancer, which is particularly prevalent in women, but and hopefully mm. something else will emerge for that in time. Dorothy, thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Professor Dorothy Keefe is CEO of Cancer Australia. And that's the health report for this week. We'll see you next time. Yeah, I'll see you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.